Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, innovations in fundraising, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, making connections to help navigate challenges and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode, we focus on the impact the pandemic had on mental health in the sector and why nonprofit professionals are uniquely vulnerable. The dictionary defines stress as physical, mental, or emotional strain or tension, and it can easily spiral out of control. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, the new normal is far from it. Society is facing a mental health crisis unlike anything we've seen. Can it be fixed? We're about to find out. In this episode, we'll hear from experts about burnout, isolation, and depression, and cover potential solutions designed to help and create lasting change. We'll explore how the ongoing pandemic has exacerbated chronic mental health challenges nonprofit professionals face, and how employers can better support their staff by creating psychologically and emotionally healthier workplaces. These issues aren't new, but the pandemic-driven mental health crisis has intensified their impact and made worldwide headlines. Simone Biles withdrawing from Team Gymnastics event today. I say put mental health first, so it's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions to focus on yourself. Tennis star Naomi Osaka has withdrawn from the French Open. When I win, I don't feel happy. And then when I lose, I feel very sad. I, I think I'm going to take a break from playing for a while. Saginaw Spirit player Terry Trafford committing suicide last March. I suffer without him and it's very painful. Having mental health problems isn't unique and rare, it's actually quite common. And then if you think about that notion of if it's one in two people by age 40, even if you're not one of the people experiencing it, you're a family member, you're a friend. So it's all around us and it runs the gamut from moderate to mild anxiety and depression to more serious issues like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, which of course occur in a much smaller portion of the population. But mental health issues don't target certain people, it's ubiquitous, it's all around us. That was Steve Lurie, former executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association Toronto branch and recipient of the Order of Canada for Advocacy for Mental Health Support. Now retired, Steve is an adjunct professor at the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto. I think in the mental health sector, the fact that 
we're talking about large numbers of a population at any one time. I mean, the mental health sector is targeted at people who are suffering mental distress. But I think you also see it in other sectors that the not-for-profit world works in, particularly seniors. A lot of people work in home care and social care. And we know that besides dementia, which becomes a big issue once people reach 85, Prior to that, and I remember, you know, 25, 30 years ago, Dr. Marie-France Rivard, who was the expert in psychogeriatric psychiatry, telling me that the big problem for mental health in the elderly was depression. And that's caused by loneliness, loss of partners, loss of social networks, physical health issues that are cropping up. So I think we have to be attuned to the fact that mental health issues, even pre-pandemic, have been with us since time immemorial. And unfortunately, access to mental health services is still problematic across the country, whether it's for employees who are experiencing mental health difficulties or the general public. Obviously, we've seen improvements, but you know, I have a recording of the late Dr. Claire Hinks, who started CMHA in 1918, and he talks about that this problem of mental health issues or mental illness puts more people in hospital than other physical health disorders. That's still true today. The rate of mental illness is 1.5 times that of cancer and heart disease. So I think what we need to accept is that mental health problems, similar to physical health problems, is part of our overall human makeup. And it doesn't matter what sector you work in, you're going to experience it either in the people you're working with as a helper or your colleagues. And what we need to do is do a much better job. After the pandemic hit Canada in early 2020, it was clear the nonprofit sector was particularly impacted, with the organizations and professionals being uniquely vulnerable. I talked with Renzia Mellis, founder of Integral Workplace Health and a certified psychological health and safety advisor who views the pandemic as a collective traumatic event and explains the five stages we experienced as the pandemic progressed. They're very recognizable in the reactions that we saw with people. So the first part is, you know, really anticipation. We've heard some things, maybe there's some rumbling, there's some rumors, and then suddenly it hits, right? There are now more than 118,000 cases. The World Health Organization calls it a pandemic. Pandemic is not a word to use lightly or carelessly. Everybody kicks in with their public health measures. Things are extremely serious right now. Whether they absolutely knew what to do or not was a different piece, but it, it's there. And now we need to deal with it and it's a direct threat to us. So the first phase that people go through is what they would call the heroic phase. This is where people are very optimistic and you saw that, you know, people were optimistic about the outcome, you know, we're going to get through this, so we're locked in and we're going to display our talent. Suddenly we have the opportunity to sing Bohemian Rhapsody with our daughter and to put that on online or we're going to start baking and get creative and there's tons of funny memes all over Facebook and so that's kind of like the starting point where people are very optimistic about how they're going to deal with this and it's kind of like weird and so that's the first phase and then people kind of go to the next phase which is the 
community connection piece. And we saw this also. We're suddenly, you know, we're reaching out to people. We're wondering, oh, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. There's all kinds of acts of kindness happening. We're thinking, you know, how's my old neighbor getting their groceries? I need to go and help them. Let me reach out, you know. And, and again, YouTube and Facebook are such wonderful reflections of these things where you could see what was happening, where you're seeing all kinds of videos of people involving people that they may never otherwise have contact with in the neighborhood, but they're all dancing in the streets together and doing all these things. So these are like the phases and these are where people are feeling optimistic and connecting with each other. And then eventually what sets in is kind of like the fatigue the exhaustion because we can only do that for so long and hang in and be optimistic now things need to kind of start going back and so now you know we're highly aware of the fact that yeah we're working from home we don't have to compete but we're also 24 7 with the family we're working at the kitchen table with the catwalk and in front of the zoom camera all of these things start to fix in and people can only be out of shape for so long and then they need to kind of find their shape back and so that's the next phase where people kind of slide down into exhaustion and disillusionment and disappointment. And eventually people start to, to rebuild again. So there's two things about that rebuilding phase with COVID is one with the rebuilding is we start to integrate things and rather than thinking, oh, you know what, it's such a pain in the, to have like the family there the whole time. And I, yes, it's lovely to see my children growing up, but I would love to have some time to myself. So now people start to make routines and they start to adjust and they start to put things in place based on what they're experiencing now. So they start to make that their new normal and they start to rebuild. But one of the unique challenges of COVID is that we don't really know how to rebuild. You know, when my house is flooded, I know what a house looks like. And so maybe next time I build a house, I'm gonna put it on stilts so that I'm not gonna be at risk again. But with COVID, we don't really know what that house is going to look like and what we need to do to keep that house safe in the future. And that is, you know, where psychologists are talking about this is, you know, the biggest experiment in history, psychologically, because we don't really know how to rebuild. And that creates a lot of additional anxiety for people. And then, of course, there's also people that get stuck in that middle phase, that disillusionment phase, and continue to be frustrated and wait for things to change. While, you know, we've been in this for 18 months and it's not changing and we don't really know when it will. Deep into the pandemic, we're experiencing the great resignation in the nonprofit sector, with mental health and burnout leading to people exiting their jobs. What's the extent of the problem? If you're working in mental health, obviously you see examples of resilience, but people come to you because they're having problems. And some of those problems are long-term and appear to be intractable. And the recovery journey is never linear. There can be steps forward and then steps back. And so the people who work in mental health, particularly community mental health, need to be quite resilient. They often see people at their worst and then they have to both give hope and be able to help people in terms of skill building, basic empathy, move forward on their recovery journey. Over time, that can take quite a toll on staff because, again, they're seeing people struggling with difficulty. At the same time that most people working in mental health, and I certainly know this from when I worked at CMHA, that the staff were 
really, really dedicated. And we often heard from our service users about how incredible the staff were, how they, how they never gave up on people. And so that's a really important feature of working in mental health, that you have to believe in human possibility. But at the same time, if you do it year after year after year, sometimes you can approach burnout. Sometimes you'll experience critical incidents that stay with you. With a long social services career on the front line and in management, Raksha Bayana, now an advocate for the sector, personally understands the frustration of depleted staff and increased need. What had been going on for some years was a sort of erosion of the revenue from various critical sources, and we were busy trying to get more funds. And what happens in that process is that it's kind of an insidious thing. It creeps up, and there's a sense of a mental fog You're used to supporting staff as a director who are dealing with really very vulnerable people, whether it's abused women or children who have been sexually abused or seniors who are isolated or people with severe mental health and addiction problems. And what happens is you're giving incessantly and there's a sense of you don't have any more to give. You just, you're depleted and your productivity goes down, you can't understand, you're trying to do more. So the mental fog, the sense of not being efficient becomes all pervasive. And it's a really tough spot to be in. Burnout is a chronic problem in the nonprofit sector. But the uncertainty about the pandemic, combined with the increased demands caused by COVID-19, made a perfect storm. Unlike a natural disaster that's fixed in time, such as an earthquake, a hurricane, or a flood, the pandemic has been a continuing phenomenon over a long period. We asked Renzia how that changes the impact on mental health. When we're dealing with a situation like that, we need to deal with stressors and we need to minimize distress. And so the challenge there is that we need to be resilient much longer and do all those things that foster resilience much longer. And in that uncertainty, people are more challenged to find the stability in their own self and in their own environment around what they can and cannot control. So what you can and cannot control has become a lot smaller. And that can be a real challenge for people to refocus on that and to kind of let go of that larger picture that they really can't control. Pam Paul, policy advisor for the Ontario Nonprofit Network, oversaw a number of surveys conducted by ONN that revealed the extent of the pandemic's impact on the nonprofit labor force, exacerbating pre-existing vulnerabilities in the sector. I would describe the immediate reaction of the sector as chaotic. Whenever has our total sector, not just across the province, but across the country, had to shut down and move to online in some way. So definitely chaotic and definitely, you know, I would say pivot was the word of the moment as nonprofits were assessing, okay, what do we shut down? What can we do from home? And what can we not do from home at all? There's a lot of pivoting happening. And that's what I find so interesting about our sector is that it's so diverse. We have 
the essential workers in our sector, a lot of those spaces that didn't shut down, child care, home care, long-term care, personal support workers, shelters, developmental disability services, all of that, they were considered essential workers, so work as usual, right? And then we had those other services that you didn't need to be in person to do, but definitely had a client sort of focus. So whether it's immigrant and settlement, employment and training, any other sort of wraparound support services that don't necessarily require that in-person counseling, family services, that sort of stuff. So those were the ones who are like, okay, really trying to pick up and move online and really accelerating digitization of the sector almost that was so unanticipated. And then we had a part of the sector, you know, I would say was particularly hit and especially the workers in those subsectors, arts and culture industries, our sports and recreation industries, our faith-based spaces were all shut down, not considered essential services. And how do you move a theater production online? How do you move faith-based spaces and convenings and all of that to online spaces? How do you do a soccer game online? <laughs> you can't, right? So definitely sort of thinking about the sector in those three ways and the labor force in all those three spaces. As we were pivoting, it was like, okay, we can do this. We can sort of pivot. And we were expecting support, whether that's from provincial or federal government as those announcements were coming down. We need to talk about this stuff openly. We need to not pretend that we have to be invincible. I'm a disabled essential worker, and I'm really concerned about the disabled and elderly community right now. I suffered a panic attack and went to the ER, but I still feel very hopeless. It's hard to even think of the future. Canada's extraordinary achievement of high vaccination rates in 2021 has been tempered by the variants of COVID that eclipsed our hopes of an imminent new normal with the realization the pandemic is here to stay for a while longer. How will the uncertainty about the future impact workers' mental health when facing exhaustion, anxiety, and burnout? According to Statistics Canada, 27% of working adults say they experience a lot or an extreme amount of stress daily. In addition, 62% say work is the main reason. Yet we know those who work in the nonprofit sector are there to contribute to a cause they believe in. The challenge is that nonprofit workers on the front line often face vicarious trauma, even while their commitment to their mission compels them to muscle through their darkest moments rather than reaching out for help themselves. People that are in nonprofit, they work at a high level of self-sacrifice and commitment to an overarching cause. And that means that when they're frustrated in being able to do that work, it hits them harder because they're very committed. Many of the people, certainly the ones that are in the nonprofit sector, in the human servicing pieces of that sector that are often working with disadvantaged and marginalized groups. So the personal impact in terms of me being able to do what I believe in, what is important, is stronger. Plus, of course, you're working with groups that may be at a higher risk. So this is where you're also seeing that vicarious trauma because maybe I'm not struggling with it, but I'm seeing my clients affected and struggling, kind of going against the grain of what I'm hoping to give and to do for these people. So that puts them at a higher risk of burnout and a much higher need to do self-care and resilience work for themselves. 
and they are doing emotional labor. You know, when you talk about vicarious trauma, that's part of emotional labor. Just to get another example to let you know what that is, is if I'm a greeter at the Walmart, I need to be smiling even though my feet are killing me and I have a headache. And so people working with other people, they can't be themselves. It's not like a friend relationship. So you need to put so much of your own concerns and suffering on the back burner. And of course, because they are like essential workers working with people, they are at a higher risk in that place through as well. They may be working with a group that's at higher risk and hence for themselves at a higher risk and taking that back home with them, right? So I think in that sense, people certainly in the human service sector of the nonprofit were very hard hit and had a much higher risk of mental health impact. Some businesses are having trouble hiring enough workers to reopen fully. We ran into this hurdle of trying to find employees. We couldn't get anybody. We're like, I couldn't get cousins or, you know, nephews or anybody to come in for a job. We've tripled the, the hourly rates. We were doing signing bonuses and we are probably 70, 80 uh, employees short. Let's talk about the disproportionate impact the pandemic had on the sector. The media spent a large amount of coverage on the challenges faced by the corporate world. But remote work altered the landscape of both corporate and nonprofit sectors where for-profit corporations may have had the infrastructure to pivot on a dime. Nonprofits are left to scramble. And in the nonprofit sector, restrictions of the use of funding make the investing on infrastructure exceedingly challenging. Renzia speaks to that issue. The whole nonprofit sector is quite unique compared to, for instance, the impact on the corporate sector. First of all, they started at a disadvantage because of the way that the funding works and the budgeting works. You know, when everything went onto lockdown, first of all, they were behind in digitizing because they often are not funded to be investing in capabilities and capacity. So they started at a disadvantage in terms of going to the digitized piece and shifting that. The other pieces, of course, they're often not given budgets to actually invest in their own people. The whole idea is that whatever they get goes to the recipients of the kind of services that they offer. And so that put them at a disadvantage going into the pandemic and being able to quickly put mental health supports in place, to shift gears, to digitize, and to be on top of that piece also to make it easier for people to continue to do the work that they were doing. There were furloughs, you know, there was also in the, in the commercial world, there were furloughs and people laid off. But I do think that one of the impacts is and why people in the nonprofit sector are likely more impacted and there's no real research that separates these two groups but what you know is that people that are in the nonprofit sector they are in that work for a different reason chronic stress wreaks havoc in both men and women but for women i talk to women every day and they say they're they're feeling this profound sense of grief sadness we know that the large number of individuals working in the nonprofit sector are women they may be juggling their professional life with the demands of being a parent or a caregiver or other sorts of personal responsibilities. How has this exacerbated the nature and the depth of the mental health impacts on the sector? 
80% of our workforce across the country are women workers in, in the nonprofit sector, right? So heavily women majority workforce. And we know in a lot of different subsectors, particularly Black women, other racialized women, women with disabilities, Indigenous women are concentrated in our sector, even though we might not have the data to back that up. And so you're seeing so many pivots. You have your essential workers who are every day part of containing the pandemic or being on the front lines of serving those who might have come into contact with a contagion, whatever it might be, who might be not be able to go home and see their families. We have others who are now working from home that were not working from home before and their kids are at home too. And their partners are maybe at home as well. So, you know, that triple burden that we heard often about is doing your work, doing the household work and taking care of children. We know numerous studies had come out talking about that impact, particularly on women. And so the mental health impacts, I think, are pretty clear. You get burnt out women, particularly who are taking on a bulk of unpaid caregiving that perhaps they weren't doing before. And organizations where expectations didn't change, that just adds on to that. And whatever happens to our organizations in the sector impacts our workers. Well, it particularly impacts women workers. So if you are declining in revenues, that means lower wages and cuts to jobs which hurts women, or if you're not able to pivot online and you need people to come in and schools are closed and daycares are closed, how are women workers going to fare? And actually, we had a bunch of different provincial associations reach out to us about mid last summer saying, you know, if schools don't open and daycares don't open, they're worried about their workers coming back to work because most of them are women who are taking on that caregiving piece. I've been fortunate enough to be on a team that's very diverse in the sense we do have moms on our team too. And I saw firsthand so much work pressure because of the pandemic and so much going on, but also trying to manage their homes and their children and trying to sort of balance everything. And I was in awe every single day and seeing that happen. And so I can just imagine, you know, in other organizations seeing that happen. And, and we're not essential service. We were working from home, which is a different story. But a lot of child carers in our sector, home care, long-term care workers, personal support workers are all part of our sector. And we saw the devastating impact on them just via the work that they did. Change, pivot, redirect. These are words that have become prevalent in our daily conversations. The issues that stand before us are multiplied for the nonprofits, but there is hope. We're starting to see some long overdue changes. Some positive developments emerged directly from the pandemic, and some supports have been in place for decades, but have been given heightened importance and higher profile as a result of COVID-19. For decades, Raksha has been a fierce advocate for more public awareness of the hard work being done by workers in the social services sector. She's seen how critical public recognition is for people working in the sector to help them survive and thrive, despite the toll on their mental health. My first career was in the nonprofit sector. And when I left and went to the private sector, I was, I was really floored. I mean, I couldn't believe the number of awards that existed for practically every industry. And so I guess somewhere in my subconscious that started. And then an opportunity came a few years later when we IPO'd our company and decided to create a foundation. And, and then it was a no-brainer, the niche 
that we were going to occupy was the awards for the frontliners of the sector. Because I'd been there, I knew the incessant demands that were on the sector and the amount of emotional toll that it took on them. So I think the other thing, Mary, honestly, was the undervaluing of the sector. It's sort of like, oh yeah, you work in the social service, so big deal. There was no esteem attached to working in the sector. And this was our small way of trying to, through public ceremonies, we always had public ceremonies with either politicians or influencers being the keynote, in order to increase the esteem and the recognition of the economic contribution and the numbers. I mean, 11% of Canada's workforce works in the nonprofit sector and they contribute almost $200 billion annually. Nobody recognizes that because they're paid so little, but they do so much. Can you tell me what else you learned about the sector and the people who work in it as a result of hosting these awards? You know, there's a lot of surveys that have been done in the for-profit sector on the value of recognition. And I don't think I really understood that until these awards began to happen. And there are many, many stories. And I think the best way is to give you a quote from one of the recipients. Our compelling story isn't one single story or incident. Our story is about how during the time of working from home, experiencing phases of isolation, showing up for clients every day while using virtual platforms to connect with your team, this award brought our team together. This award acknowledged the incredibly difficult conversations every day that we have with clients and how each of those conversations make a difference and have impact to our community. It showed the significance of their efforts and relationships. There were some co-workers who were crying with so much pride and joy for getting this recognition. It was overwhelming and made them feel that they were also recognized. So, Recognition is well known to, in fact, reignite motivation. People work harder after they get recognized. It's a validation. It increases engagement and, of course, productivity. So I don't think I realized that. There was another young man, there are not many men in, in the sector, who came up to me after an award ceremony and he said, I just want to tell you my story. He said, there are three sons in our family. And my oldest brother is uh, an investment banker and he's seen as being very successful. The second brother is in real estate and he's seen as successful, but I'm in the nonprofit sector and I'm seen as a loser. But the awards made me feel like a winner. So that's the validation that they get. And the public, recognized by politicians and the peers, is very, very important. It inspires other people. Let's talk about what the future may hold. Steve Lurie believes that even after the pandemic subsides, society and the nonprofit sector itself will have to address what he calls the mental health pandemic that remains. Steve looks at possibilities. I think part of this is to identify what are the free supports available, you know, online. And so, for example, the Not Myself Today toolkit that allows people to have conversations in their staff teams about how people are coping, and then some practical tips about how to help people who are in need of assistance. So you need to start with something like that. 
And even if you don't use not myself today, I mean, just checking in with your teams on a regular basis about how they're doing. There's a, a program in Brazil, and Brazil isn't a well-resourced mental health jurisdiction, where they basically bring communities together just to talk about how people are coping. It began with, with discussions about mental health issues, AIDS, and now it's been COVID. But there's wisdom in groups. So I think part of this would be if you're a small employer, at least bring your staff together to talk about how are we doing and how can we help each other and what more can we do. I think at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, there are locally, certainly in the GTA, and I would assume in many of the larger urban centers across the country, governments in United Way have convened tables to talk about what are the effects of COVID and how do we move forward and what resources can be shared. And so I think small agencies need to identify what are the opportunities in our communities to do better work together. Renzia Mellis believes self-care and wellness practices have to come from the top. Nonprofit leaders have to walk their talk. Well, first of all, listen. They need to listen to people. They need to recognize this. They need to encourage people to do these self-care things and give them permission. Sometimes it's a matter of management giving permission. And, you know, in our other conversations, we've talked about this, Mary, the pivotal role of management and leadership in walking the talk. So yes, you can tell your frontline workers, it's okay to put in some boundaries, to take care of yourself, to take these breaks that you need and that you're actually entitled to, to actually do these things. But if you're not doing it yourself as management or leadership, it's very hard for people because they will do what you do, not what you say. So that's one of the things where they play a pivotal role in role modeling that to people, giving them permission to do those things. To Pam Paul, it all comes down to decent work initiatives, a project that ONN has advocated for some time, but that the pandemic has really highlighted the need for in the sector. One of the things that was really highlighted, not just at ONN, but generally, I would say in the nonprofit sector, that it has become so important to decent work and work-life balance in any way, is the flexibility of workplaces. And this idea that you don't have to be in the office to know that you're doing work. This idea that you don't have to work nine to five to be productive. This idea that, you know, if today's not a good day and you're just not getting stuff done because there's so much going on, and the world is sort of ending, that you can take time to step away, right? And ONN, we're a learning organization, and we try to walk the talk, of course, but I would say like one of the biggest learnings for us is it's okay to say no, it's okay to slow down, it's okay to people need to step away for a bit and just catch their breath. Really providing that true essence of work-life balance because there was definitely no boundary for work and life and personal life when it came to the pandemic. It was all within, you know, whether 500 square feet you live in or 3,000 square feet. <laughs> Decent work is a journey. No one is expecting you, big or small organization, to come in and have everything laid out. It takes time, and some of our organizations are so old and built on such archaic notions of what work used to be. Or some of our organizations are brand new and maybe just came up as a response to a community need. So HR wasn't even a focus. Just recognizing that wherever you end up starting is okay. As long as you're taking, you know, the low hanging fruit or starting small or doing whatever you can and building upon it over time, because then it'll become culture. Raksha Bayana's mission to give public recognition to the social services sector has grown beyond the annual awards she hosts. 
Raksha is lobbying governments across Canada to institute an official day of recognition for the social services. In 2020, the Nova Scotia provincial government launched the first historic day of recognition. And at the date of this podcast, Raksha is working hard to persuade Ontario, Alberta and British Columbia to follow suit. We see it as foundational, Mary. The public is not aware of the role that economic and social. They're aware on some levels of social, but not of the economic at all. So certainly public awareness is very important. The next step is really decent work. The majority of the workforce does not make a decent wage. They can't live on it. There was a survey that was done by Imagine Canada, and it's really concerning a few years ago, and they asked young people whether they would consider a career in the nonprofit sector, and almost 67% said, no, never. Why? Because they couldn't sustain a family on the wages that were made. So I'm hoping this will be foundational. What these invisible champions, the frontline workers, do provides value beyond money. And I hope that people will realize that those people who care for people, who are vulnerable, and we can all be vulnerable at different times in our lives, that they're worth your esteem. The physical toll of the pandemic is visible. However, the mental toll has been often overlooked. Many nonprofit workers have suffered greatly. But through it all, the nonprofit sector has risen above the challenges to innovate, reinvent, and find new ways to deliver on its mission. People are inherently resilient. So most people carried on, or in fact did more than they were doing previously. And we saw great innovations in service delivery that weren't restricted to the community mental health sector, but uh, certainly in the meetings I attended, I saw it cross-sector where, uh, you know, again, moving to online service delivery, increased access for many people. So I think what we've learned is that, and it sort of supports what we already knew, is that humans are, are adaptable and they are resilient. We just have to recognize how resilient the sector is. Immediate shutdowns, loss of revenues, accelerated digitization and pivoting to online and continuing to serve communities. And we did it. We actually did that as a sector, not just in Ontario, but across the country and continue to serve our communities when they were facing some of the hardest days they've seen. So just kudos to the sector in that. And I guess the learning there is that when push comes to shove, like we'll show up and we'll not only show up, but we'll do what needs to get done. If something as tragic as the pandemic can be said to have ushered in something positive, it may be the greater recognition and appreciation by Canadians of the important work that the nonprofit sector does every day and its contributions to the betterment of our community and society. With greater public awareness, change is possible, work is being done, and the human spirit's resilience keeps us hopeful that more solutions can and will be found to make lasting change to improve nonprofit workplaces, allowing organizations across Canada to better deliver on their missions. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Charity Village Connects. As we close, I'd like to update you on some exciting developments. 
Since we recorded this episode, Raksha was successful in lobbying the Ontario Legislature to unanimously pass Bill 9, an act to create a week of appreciation for the nonprofit sector in perpetuity. I want to thank our guests, Raksha Bayana, Renzi Amelis, Pamela Apal, and Stephen Lurie for joining us. Links to mental health resources, materials for creating decent work initiatives in your workplace, and other links to support the official days of recognition across Canada for the sector can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to hear the entire conversations with our guests, please visit charityvillage.com to watch all the video interviews. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment, funding, HR, and so much more. Please take a moment to check out our website at charityvillage.com. In our next episode, as we face a new year following the Great Resignation, with a large exodus from the sector and high turnover, we ask whether the nonprofit sector is still seen as a desirable career path for those looking for meaningful work post-COVID. We'll explore whether the sector made any progress over the past year in addressing the burnout epidemic and creating more equitable workplaces, and speak to experts about how to attract and retain talent in the year of Omicron. Join us next time on Charity Village Connects.